Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very excited to bring the conversation I had with Nancy McWilliams. Nancy is visiting professor at Rutgers University's Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology. She is a psychologist and trained psychoanalyst. She is affiliated with the Center for Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis of New Jersey. She is a graduate of the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis. She's the former president of Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. She mostly specializes in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and supervision. Um, and she is the author of numerous books, uh, including the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, Psychoanalytic Case Formulation, and Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. She is well-revered uh, within the field, and um, as I mentioned in the conversation, she's uh, one of her books is the one I used uh, in, in grad school myself. So it was a, a big honor, big privilege to, to talk to someone that's so uh, well-established and um, revered within the field. So in this conversation, we talk all about um, psychoanalysis, um, past and present, and the various iterations of what that looks like. So obviously we start with Freud and go all the way up until uh, the present and, and what it looks like and some, some of what the future holds for um, psychoanalytic thought or any type of psychodynamic uh, case formulation. So we, talk, we start by talking about the origins of psychoanalysis, we talk about Freud, the misconceptions of Freud. We talk about the evolution of psychoanalysis in terms of the theory, um, starting with drive theory, ego psychology, uh, to object relations, to self-psychology, to relational therapy. We talk about what psychoanalytic therapists do well and what they could improve on. We spend a lot of time laying out um, case formulation or case conceptualization. So essentially, when, when a clinician has a client from a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic framework, um, why case conceptualization is super important. It's not just about skills and techniques and uh, manuals and things like that. It's how are you conceptualizing the human being in front of you and trying to have a kind of a structure or frame of understanding all of the challenges and problems that they're presenting. So we talk about level of personality uh, organization. We talk about defenses. Uh, we talk about uh, counter-transference and transference. We also talk about uh, the training that's needed for, for students currently, um, whether it's in psychoanalysis formally or psychodynamic training. And we talk about what clients can look for um, with those that have any type of psychoanalytic background and many, many other topics. I, again, I was I was so pleased with this conversation. Um, I really was was quite honored. Um, I've been wanting to talk about um, psychoanalytic um, theory and thought, and what that looks like and why it's important. Um, as I mentioned in the conversation, there's nothing wrong with um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or um, DBT or ACT or any of these kind of modern types of therapies that are used a lot, um, they all have their value and their merits. Um, I'm obviously, um, in, in, my, in my world, more uh, have more of a preference towards uh, psychoanalytic thought. Um, it's what I use, and so 
I've been wanting to kind of give it its due and let people kind of hear about it and hear why it's still relevant. And uh, couldn't really think of anybody better to do that than, uh, than, than with Nancy. So as always, you can uh, find this conversation, uh, along with all the other uh, past and future conversations, at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube, Converging Dialogues. Uh, so get over there, subscribe, follow, uh, share widely, tell folks that might be interested. And uh, now I bring you Nancy McWilliams. I'm here with Nancy McWilliams. Uh, Nancy, it's a, uh, it's a it's a big honor to have you come on uh, on my podcast. So uh, thanks so much for for doing this. My pleasure. Yeah, no, thanks. I I was telling you right before we got on, uh, you've you've written a, a lot of uh, fantastic uh, books. I have a, I have a first edition here of psychoanalytic diagnosis, understanding personality structure in the clinical process. You've written many other books as well, uh, psychoanalytic case formulation, uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, and many others. And uh, this was this was one of the textbooks I used in uh, in grad school when I was getting my doctorate in psych. So it's a it really is a, a big honor to have you come on here and and uh, tell us all about psychoanalytic work. Uh, before we we get into uh, many of the topics for today, why don't uh, you tell listeners for you know people that don't know who you are, um, kind of what your professional background is in or clinical background, and uh, what you're what you're currently up to. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, I actually got my doctorate in personality rather than clinical, but in New Jersey, you can get a license to practice if you have enough clinical experience. And that's the route I took when I was um, a graduate student. The um, It was the heyday of the Johnson era community mental health center movement. And uh, there was an effort to train a lot of people who had uh, interests in nearby areas mm-hmm. by the mental health center near me. I got my doctorate from Rutgers and I uh, got my psychoanalytic training from the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis, which was the first um, non-medical psychoanalytic institute uh, I think, at least. It certainly was the first one in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm mostly a therapist, but I, I'm also a teacher. I like to teach. I like to write. And I, I was lucky enough to get my foot in the door uh, taking over someone's course when he was on a sabbatical of some kind uh, to teach at the Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology at Rutgers. And the students liked what I was teaching them, and the the dean and the department chair, even though they weren't psychoanalytic, were very supportive of anything that the students told them that they were helping. Mm. So I stayed there for 40 years on a a one-day-a-week kind of appointment, um, which put me around academics and students, and that was immensely good for me. Analysts often get too isolated and talk only to each other, as you mm-hmm. definitely know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm still seeing patients. Um, I have shifted my practice more toward consultation and supervision in recent years. I've always been in private practice. I love the work. Everybody's different. I love the individuality of uh, everybody that I work with, I learn something from. Mm-hmm. Um, not just, you know, like diagnostic differences, like whether you're more hysterical or obsessional or paranoid or whatever, but mm-hmm. 
you know, what's it like to be a twin? What's it like to be somebody who was born with some kind of facial defect? What is it like to come from India? What's it like to be brought up in a religious background that I'm not familiar with? Uh, all the ways in which people are all different uh, mm -hmm. fascinates me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, to I totally agree. I totally agree with you on that last point. I mean, really what you're saying is, is you know, how do you see the the different shades of humanity, you know, in, in, in yeah. different aspects. And, um, and you learn something from, from, from clients in clinical work. I mean, at least I, I mean, sounds like you are, and I do as well every day. And there's, every something, day. there's something, it's like a bottomless well, you know, it's just, it's just yeah. nothing. You don't get the bottom of it, which is, which is uh, special, I think in, in some ways and unique. And um, yeah, I mean, of course, uh, you know, I mean, academia has its place and uh but uh, yeah there's something about doing clinical work people have asked me before would you ever want to just do academia or maybe just you know just the podcast or something else and then say you know maybe one day I'll, I'll scale back kind of how much i see clients but um i just really i really enjoy it um and i enjoy learning something new about uh about folks all the time and what they teach me about humanity and it's 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 fascinating the hum humans are and you help people Yes, I mean, yes, yes. You're useful. It's a yes. it's very it's very special to have a profession where you get paid for being useful. Yes. Yes, I would I would I would absolutely agree with that. And uh you know, uh, the 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 change doesn't come in, you know, sometimes people have this idea about therapy that there's these light bulb moments every every session's like <laughs> doesn't happen that way. It's yeah. a long process, but when you do have those moments, the payoff is, you know, is is great to see, you know, not necessarily for myself, but to see that kind of transforming or, or kind of remaking of sorts for for a client or a patient is is I don't know it's a privilege in some ways to really be a part it of it. It's a, a sacred trust. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, okay, so so let's let's talk about um, psychoanalytic and psychodynamic work. Uh, we can talk about the distinctions there, but here's my kind of intro into this. So a lot of people um, will will know different types of treatment and they'll know different types of therapy. Many people will know cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a, it's a very common one. It's empirically supported. Um, derivatives of that are, are many. Um, another popular one that people like is uh, dialectical uh, therapy as well, DBT, which is done by uh, Marshall Linehan, which has been around for mm -hmm. a couple of 30 years to 40 years now. Um, so a lot of people don't know, I think, about psychodynamic uh, therapy, both conceptually and in terms of treatment interventions. And so maybe just give us, I guess, a kind of overview of of where this kind of comes from in terms, obviously, this has origins in Freud, and it's a kind of, I guess you could say, sort of direct line from that. And there's different variants here, but, and then kind of get us to where it's at kind of in a contemporary uh, setting. Yeah. Many, many people think of Freud and it's very antiquated and dated and sure. I mean, there's some, some qualms you can have about him or whatever, but I think people miss how psychodynamic work, what, or, or what it looks like in a contemporary 21st century setting. So if you could speak to that too, that'd be great as well. Yeah. And before I start with that, I, I think I want to say it's partly our own fault as psychoanalytic therapists that people have not understood what we do. We aren't very good at, at uh, doing the public relations part of our work. <laughs> and we resisted uh, for a long time, um, spending a lot of time doing research on it. Mm 
And then there began to be a demand that there be a, an evidence base for what we do. And now there is. There's a huge evidence base for psychoanalytic therapies of various kinds. And there's an even bigger evidence base for the fact that the most critical thing in any psychotherapy is not the particular technique. It's issues of personality and issues of relationship and personality in both therapist and patient. In other words, if you have a good fit, that makes a lot more difference than whether your therapist is doing exposure therapy or or emotion-focused therapy or any of the other particularly name-brand therapies. Mm-hmm. So we, we've been our own worst enemies in the psychoanalytic community. We love to do what we do. We wouldn't want to bother proving things to the researchers. Mm-hmm. We trained people in freestanding institutes that didn't keep up a conversation with the university. So there are a lot of academics, especially who, you know, equate psychoanalysis with um, a version of it that was, uh, even then, a a minority kind of psychotherapy in the 1950s, where you put the patient on the couch and the therapist says almost nothing, and eventually the therapist accuses them of having penis envy. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of image Mm -hmm. is everywhere. And um, Freud didn't practice that way. And there were some bad analysts who practiced that way, sure. and some of them were quite arrogant. Mm-hmm. And all you need to do to turn off a whole community of thoughtful researchers is to act as if we don't need what you offer us. Mm-hmm. We already know everything. Mm-hmm. And that is partly the result of psychoanalysis having attained a certain medical prestige mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Um, Freud himself. I think if people actually read Freud, they'll find him fascinating. Yeah, he's a terribly good writer. I mean, he's, he's a very a good great writer. writer. He he was a good teacher. Um, he changed his views over the course of his life, so he was willing to be wrong. Um, he was wrong about a bunch of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and and I think we made it a problem to have idealized Freud too much. And I don't mean just psychoanalysts, many of whom always you know thought of him in a kind of balanced way. But um, there there were people that thought that Freud was going to save them somehow and everything, uh, you know, reduced to psychoanalysis and had you been analyzed enough. And when you idealize something too much, eventually you're going to get the backlash. Yeah. And eventually people exposed the fact that, you know, Freud had known about some instances of sexual abuse and um, hadn't said that in his reports. That doesn't surprise me because he was treating his friends and neighbors. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. he wasn't going to go about, um, you know, violating all the family secrets. But also it came out that he had gotten really fond of cocaine in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. I think if I tried to omit every psychotherapist who's ever flirted with a drug, it, it would it would eliminate an awful lot of people. But, you know, these days, Freud is presented as this misogynist, um, cokehead weirdo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially by people who've never read him. Right. And it's really not true. Uh, you know, especially uh, as a woman, I have to say, I think he was wrong about things like the universality of penis envy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he was entirely wrong about the fact that women feel envious of the power of men, and it's often symbolized in the idea of "I wish I had a penis." Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 seems like a, a no-brainer to me. Mm-hmm. And Freud was unusual for his time. 
um, the women he started treating, the people with so-called hysteria, conditions that we would now consider post-traumatic um, or dissociative conditions, he listened to them. This was at a time when everybody else was making fun of them, thinking that they were weak women. In fact, after World War I, when the soldiers came back and had the same kinds of symptoms, they were spat on because they were having weak feminine kinds of problems. Well, Freud took them seriously. He listened. It was his patients who taught him how to let them free associate and listen for the themes. And that's a big part of even contemporary psychoanalytic therapy. He supported uh, women on an equal basis with men in the field. He admitted Sabina Spielrein to his inner circle. He encouraged his daughter to become an analyst. Psychoanalysis is the only field I knew about as a young woman in which women were equally important as men as theorists. I mean, we had Karen Horney, we had Melanie Klein, we had Frieda from Reichman, we had Anna Freud. And that you didn't find then in other fields. You find it now. But so I think he gets um, a bad rap. Not that I think he was flawless. I think uh, one of his worst qualities was he tried to make psychoanalysis into a movement rather than, you know, um, a conversation with other scientists. And he was um, sometimes uh, he, he, he could get opinionated in ways that were not useful to the movement. And he tended to generalize if he felt that something was true of him and a few patients, he tended to say it was true for everybody. And this is a big problem. You know, mm-hmm. the, the idea everybody has an Oedipal complex, everybody has this or that. If you read some of his stuff, some of his ideas were brilliant and they're still out there, only we call them different names. Exactly. Yeah. You know, researchers in the brain are really impressed with how much is unconscious, but they Absolutely. don't call it unconscious because that sounds psychoanalytic mm-hmm. and like that weirdo Freud. And they call them implicit. Okay? Mm-hmm. There are a mm-hmm. lot of things like that. There are a lot of psychoanalytic ideas that are just taken for granted in the culture. And because they seem reasonable, they're not considered psychoanalytic anymore. Mm-hmm. Like when people say they are going through an identity crisis, they don't know that comes right out of Erickson's mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. And Erickson was considered himself a Freudian. Um, or when you say you're in denial or you're being defensive, that all comes from psychoanalysis. So it's a weird <laughs> position now that that analytic therapists are in where our profession tends to be seen on the basis of all the things that are a little quirky about it, like mm-hmm. Freud putting people on the couch, which is, you know, on the face of it, a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but not all the things that have come to be just part of cultural knowledge. Mm-hmm. So there, Freud did change his um, theories over time. And you asked me to talk about the evolution of psychoanalytic therapy. Mm-hmm. It started with Freud working with people with problems that were at the time called hysterical. And we learned that if you if you just let them talk and try to find the feelings behind what they were experiencing, their symptoms started to go away. Um, so his first theories were a lot about... Um, the energy that goes into creating a symptom 
and how you have to dissipate that energy to get rid of a symptom. He was trying to, it's interesting, contemporary psychologists are always comparing ourselves to the real science, physics, you know, Mm -hmm. and Freud did exactly the same thing. He took models from Helmholtz and Fechner and the physics of his day so that he had concepts like cathexis, Mm -hmm. like, you know, if, if, if I'm in love with you and, 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 and I have something that you have touched it has a special meaning for me i could affect it you know? mm-hmm. that's a physical idea or the idea of sublimation which in physics is you know going from like a gas to a liquid oh sorry a, a, a frozen state to a gaseous state without going through a liquid state right. he talked about how people you know, we'll need to sublimate certain kinds of feelings. Like if you're feeling sadistic towards somebody, maybe you can turn that into doing something socially useful. Like maybe you become a surgeon and you cut people up for a living and it's all good, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so sublimation, cathexis, ideas like that, there's still kind of, um, that that theory was kind of thrown out. That's all considered drive theory. You have certain drives, your your concern is how are you going to get them met? You have oral drives. You you have um, uh, other kinds of of dry biological states that you have to um, quell. Uh, that um, way of thinking about psychology is not central in psychoanalysis anymore. Although there are people like Jacques Panksepp who have revised drive theory and have mm-hmm. said they're you know, Freud was wrong to say there were two kinds of drives, the life instincts and the death instincts. There are really seven drive centers and you can locate them in the brain and you can talk about what neurotransmitters are involved and so forth. So drive theory has kind of had a resurgence, mm-hmm. um, but it also never left the kind of popular imagination. You hear ordinary people saying, well, what did you do with your anger? Mm-hmm. Okay, that assumes you have a certain amount of energy in your anger and you have to put it somewhere mm-hmm. that's a concept that came directly from freud mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. so that's drive theory and then over time and he was going in this direction too but over time uh drive theory and its cousin ego psychology which was all about what defenses you use to handle your drives mm-hmm. um moved into object relations that had to do a lot with Melanie Klein's influence and then Fair Baron and Guntrip, Winnicott, Beyond. There's a whole British group that are called the British Object Relations Group. But I think Fair Baron put it best. It's not that the infant needs to satisfy drives. That's not the primary thing. The primary thing is the infant needs the safety of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And he began, I mean, <laughs> I think this is their personality differences that figure into people's theory. I think Freud was a highly secure person. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't immediately feel empathy with the need of so many of our patients to feel safe before they can even begin to feel um, interested in getting satisfactions for their drives. Mm-hmm. And Fairbairn said that the baby seeks a relationship, not a drive satisfaction. Um, so, for example, I remember wondering when I first learned Freudian theory, why 
you wouldn't find more neurosis in cultures where there was a lot of famine. And there was no evidence that they had more neurosis than we do. But if Freud was right, and these babies weren't getting their oral needs met, you should have seen more neurosis. Mm -hmm. But you didn't. And it occurred to me back then, I didn't know I was an object relation theorist, but what matters to the baby is some sense that the mother wishes she could feed it. And if the baby feels that, they feel a kind of safety and that that's much more important than how much they get fed is whether they feel they're safe with their mother and that she has their best interests in mind. So the, the reason we call it object relations comes from the original Freudian idea that every drive has a source, an aim and an object like, you know, eating the source is in hunger. The aim is satiation. The object is food. Right. In the interpersonal drives, the object is usually a person. Right. You know, sometimes it can be a symbol, like to a patriot, the flag can be an object that has great meaning. Mm -hmm. But mostly we're talking about people, and it's kind of unfortunate that we use that clunky language. Mm -hmm. um, but the object relations movement began putting the emphasis on what's the person's story? What's, what's the drama? What's the family they grew up in? What did they internalize? What did they learn about gender, about power, about safety, about the major human concerns? And how do they play that out again and again? So if, if you are grown up in a family where everybody betrays you and you've got two alcoholic parents and they neglect you, you're going to grow up thinking that the world is full of people who are going to betray you and break your heart and nobody's listening to you. Hmm. Um, so object relations theories ended up giving us much more clinical range. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I was aware in myself of, of saying to patients when they were when they were self-critical, for example, when they said, yeah, I'm such a wimp. Instead of saying, well, you know, you're using the defense of turning against the mm -hmm. self, I would say, who's saying that in mm -hmm. your head? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you would find there was somebody they had internalized that was saying it. Mm -hmm. And then in, uh, in the 50s and 60s, I would say ego psychology, which was still based in drive theory, and object relations theories were the two primary um, rather uh, competing ways of thinking about people, um, as exemplified in the so-called controversial discussions in Great Britain between Anna Freud, who was representing drive theory and ego psychology, and Melanie Klein, who was, you know, um, the flagship person for object relations. And Otto Kernberg did a brilliant integration of those two um, ways of thinking. But Heinz Kovit here um, in Chicago, uh, not here in Chicago, but in the United States, in Chicago, um, began feeling that the ego psychology and object relations movement didn't put enough emphasis on empathy mm -hmm. and feeling with. He was extremely influenced by Carl Rogers. He doesn't he doesn't cite him in his writings, but I know that to be the case. Um, and a lot of what Kohut emphasized involved 
feeling with the patient, being attuned to the patient, not putting your theories on the patient, um, listening. Um, and he, he helped us in, a, in another direction. You know, you can be very right about somebody and completely unempathic, and you're going to be completely untherapeutic. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you explain with, with Kohut here? about he had a kind of, I guess you could say, maybe not a renaissance, but he wanted to pick up, I think, Freud's initial idea or, or, or conceptualization of how we understand narcissism and understanding narcissism with a kind of, not a good, bad narcissism, but this idea of the self and how we will have different self objects and how yeah. we'll have all of these different uh, aspects. Maybe how to how co kind of uh, insert that kind of uh, theoretical underpinning with the, the the ones that were already there with ego and object relations? Well, he normalized normal narcissism. I mean, Freud uh, conceptualized narcissism as the cathexis of the self. And he felt people who were strongly organized around what we'd now call narcissistic dynamics were untreatable because mm-hmm. they didn't have any... Uh, energy left over to have the kinds of transferences um, in therapy that he had learned how to work with, with hysterical and obsessional and phobic and depressive patients. So Freud kind of wrote off narcissistic patients, but Kohut had a real feel for them. Kohut knew what it was like to be humiliated and to live in a, 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 a state of shame. His son, whom I'm close to, tells me that um, you know, he he got his medical uh, license from uh, Nazi um, Vienna, um, and it said you're not allowed to practice. You graduated from the program, but you're not allowed to practice uh, because you're a Jew. And then he has to go to the United States, where he knows no English, where he doesn't know the culture, and and he had a real feel for people who have to build a self. Um, under conditions of feeling like they're in a shame position. So he, first of all, had, he had a lot of empathy for people in, in, uh, who, who were trying to keep their self-states um, um, steady. And he uh, gave us a whole language for understanding how we all need that. You know, um, when I'm giving a lecture... I find that I look into the audience for the three or four people that tend to nod when I say things. I'm using them as what Kohut would call a self-object. Mm-hmm. I'm basically saying, okay, I must be okay because I'm getting through. They're giving me the message that they get me. And we all use each other this way all the time. That's rather different from using people as um, sort of drive satisfaction objects, mm-hmm. sexual objects or comforting objects and so forth. It's more about, I think I'm okay. And of course, in the kind of culture we live in now, um, it's hard to feel like you matter or you're okay. Things change so fast. The internet's out there. You can put a sex photo of yourself on the internet or your boyfriend does, and you get slut shamed for the next 20 years. So there are all kinds of things that are hard on our self-esteem and Kohut was a genius at being able to describe um, how people support their self-esteem and giving therapists a way to help this group of people that are increasingly large because of the particular challenges of contemporary life 
uh, helping them um, develop realistic self-esteem and reliable self-esteem. And then after him, there were the relational psychoanalysts yeah. mm-hmm. who integrated all of this mm-hmm. and and made um, their their emphasis was on the two-person nature of everything that happens in therapy. It's not like the expert therapist who's just watching the objectified patient, which some of the old literature sounds like it's like that, you know. Um, It's, uh, they're influencing me as I'm influencing them. You know, we have a lot of right brain to right brain communications, the way we know now mothers and infants do. Mm -hmm. And we have to take into account our countertransference, not as how Freud framed it, um, when our patients have an effect on us emotionally, Freud basically said, well, you should have a benign physicianly attitude throughout the course of things. And if you don't, you should go back into your own treatment and get that fixed because, you know, basically you've got to be feeling generous toward everybody. But some patients make us feel bored or angry or irritated or uh, attracted to them or any kind of a number of things. And the relational movement uh, was part of a long tradition of saying that we've got to take that seriously as data. You don't act on it yeah. to, what ex- to whatever extent you cannot. Inevitably, you do a little bit, and they call that an enactment, and then you sort of work out of it. But um, they they really, um, they talked about the weeness of mm-hmm. the psychotherapeutic dyad, not the knowledgeable expert who knows what they're doing to a patient. And I, I appreciate that. I think it goes back to Freud that he, he was learning from his patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and it, frame, it psychotherapy, if you're an analytic person, is not about applying a technique to a DSM category. Mm-hmm. It's about developing a relationship in which the patient is increasingly able to talk about the most mm-hmm. shameful, difficult parts of their life and bearing witness and helping them grieve. And, you know, symptoms, I, in my own experience, dissipate just as fast as they do with the more targeted therapies. But people like to stay in longer because they're making really much more important changes in how safe they feel, in their attachment styles, in what defenses they use, in what emotions they're comfortable with and how they regulate them, in their self-esteem, in their sense of vitality, and in... Um, accepting what can't be changed and grieving and moving on. So analytic therapy can be short-term, but it tends to go long-term if the patient can because it goes deep. Yeah, I, I, I firmly agree with, with, with everything you're saying. There's a, there's a, I want to do a few other things, bigger pieces, but before we get there, I want to ask about this idea of... Uh, Two, two, twofold, two perspectives here. So I'll ask the first one first. What is it that you feel most therapists, uh, I'll use that term loosely, um, kind of get wrong about psychodynamic therapy? And what do you think that they do best if, if they're using that type of, of therapy? Um, I think what they get wrong is the name psychoanalysis has been used for a body of knowledge. It's also been used for a particular type of therapy where you ask someone to lie on the couch and free associate and come three, four or five times a week. Mm-hmm. That's a 
that's a very expensive kind of therapy. Most of us can't do much of it. I love to do that kind of therapy, uh, but uh, it, it is expensive. And I didn't want to spend my career treating the rich. So I only do a little bit of that. Right. Um, and so they're mixing up the term psychoanalysis with that particular Mm-hmm. style of therapy and that's not useful to them in their clinic and their short-term agencies and their hospital but what they may not know is there's a hundred years of clinical observation and empirical research mm-hmm. that has gone into psychoanalytic understanding of people especially understanding of differences in personality so i think they get it wrong to think of it as a technique and to think that that the technique is that on the couch, reassociating um, therapist says very little kind of technique, because there are plenty of psychoanalytic therapies where it's once a week or uh, where the therapist is very conversational, uh, where you focus in on things, where you might give advice. You know, they, they, they have a stereotype of how mm-hmm. analysts practice based on the idea of that one stereotype of classical psychoanalysis. So that was the first part of the question, and I've already forgotten the second so, part. It's all right. So what do you think is what do you think does uh for folks that are in the psychoanalytic tradition, what do you think that they do best? I I would say you mentioned it there. I'm curious if you if if you would see the primacy of that as well, which is to me, it's the therapeutic relationship and alliance that you have yeah. with with the client. That that to me, how do I say this? I think there's a there's a a, a tr- that's a transferable thing across all therapies if, in in theory if you're doing it well but yeah. i think there's something uh i think it ties to history and conceptualization but i think that with those that use the psychoanalytic uh tradition there's such a powerful in a good way uh role of the therapeutic relationship that that's what i see yeah. as as best but i don't know if you see it the same or you see something else that they do best no, I, I think their focus on um, the relationship is profoundly important. I'm not sure it's the best, but it's certainly at the hallmark of the way I think about it. And it's not just the idea that if you're a nice person, you'll set a nice tone and the patient will co- cooperate with you. Mm-hmm. It's more that you expect all the feelings that the person has from their history to come into the treatment. So if you're my patient, for example, I I like it if you seem compliant with what we're doing. But as soon as I sense that you are unhappy or irritated, I'm going to ask you, how how are you feeling now? Does it have anything to do with your feelings toward me? Um, are are you perhaps um, impatient that you wish this could help you faster? And you want to make space for the negative feelings mm-hmm. as well. You want to admit mistakes and repair things that you got wrong. Mm-hmm. And so um, the whole part of psychoanalysis that I think is still insufficiently developed in the other therapies is dealing with the negative affects that come right into the work. You know, if a patient isn't getting better, we we want to explore what's in the way, not just consign them to, well, they weren't a good candidate for this kind of therapy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you don't have to 
pull out, uh, you know, citations here, but I guess just give us the brief, you know, you, you can pull out big kind of themes here. One of the things I think for a while was, well, CBT is evidence-based, you know, it's evidence-based treatment. They do this double blind, randomized control, you know, it's been replicated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it's all great. I mean, I think that's all wonderful. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very supportive of that. Um, but interpersonal or relational psychotherapy, which is a kind of, I would say within the world closely aligned with psychoanalytic tradition is also uh, strongly evidence-based. I mean, w- w- when people make that charge of like, yeah, well, this is just a bunch of, you know, Freud's old theories that people just kind of passed down and, you know, some people maybe retooled it, but, you know, we, we have other better evidence-based uh, treatments. How do you usually respond on the empirical side? Cause that's important, right? You want to be giving somebody uh, empirically supported treatment. You don't want to be giving them something that's, you know, just a couple of ideas. So what do you, when you, when you get that question or that criticism, I guess, what's usually, I guess, the answer you kind of give or, or kind of big, big kind of themes that you can point to of like, it is, and here's some things we've known or learned from, you know, various studies over the past, you know, 40, 50 years. Well, I say probably many things, depending upon what the misconception is that I feel like I'm up against. Um, It's true that psychoanalysis did not originally have a good evidence base for its style of treatment. That is changing very fast, but it was true for a long time. Um, But we did have a vast empirical literature on things like personality differences, temperament, Mm. trauma, um, neuroscience, uh, relationships, Mm. um, you know, the study of social interaction. We had a huge empirical literature on that. Mm. And those things I find more valuable in therapy than learning a particular technique. Mm. One of the problems, and this is not to... um, to subtract from the fact that I admire the CBT people for insisting that there be an evidence base for what they do. I think they've had a positive effect on all of us for insisting that. Um, But if you want to study, let's say, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, if you're a researcher, you have to study a clean version of that. So you eliminate people who have comorbidities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So what that ends up doing is it ends up selecting for people who are the healthiest Mm -hmm. among that group. People who come in and they say, I have OCD. I don't have anything else. No substance use problems, no personality problems, no trauma. Um, That's going to be your healthiest version. And so you develop a, a, an evidence-based treatment, like let's say exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, it helps the people in your, we would say say cherry-picked group. Mm -hmm. And their symptoms will diminish. And that's all to the good. I send people to CBT colleagues for exposure therapy. Yeah, me me too. Me too. However, if you try to do that prematurely with people whose OCD is all involved with um, other problems who are uh, more on the borderline or psychotic end of the spectrum of OCD, who, who, um, if you start questioning their OCD, start treating you as if you're a persecutor, because like one of my patients 
who told me she was late because she it just took her longer to boil all her sheets and towels. And I said, you, you boil all your sheets and towels? And she, she suddenly, she'd been working with me for five years. She suddenly looked at me as if I was a contaminatory mm. kind of person mm. and said, of course I do. Haven't you heard about germs? What mother wouldn't boil all her sheets and towels every morning? And she she really looked frightened that maybe she'd mm. been spending all this time with somebody who was going to corrupt her. Mm. That kind of OCD, you're not going to handle with exposure therapy. And that's where you need a, 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 another mm-hmm. way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. So there are limits to the kinds of research that is possible to find evidence-based mm-hmm. treatments. and. It's very rare in my practice that come somebody comes in with one DSM disorder, not comorbid with anything else. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, yes, it's, it's the same same for me. And I think most clinicians would say the same thing. You don't get this kind of sanitized, pure, if you will, you know, kind of textbook kind of disorder. Uh, and I understand the scientific method in trying to find the efficacy of, of mm-hmm. a certain treatment. I mean, I understand it, but... Um, you're right. There is a kind of whole swath of people that don't fit into that. There is a lot of comorbidities, and it's like, well, what do we, what do we, what do we do with that? How do we? And I think you need a, a certain type of, of framework. So this is what I want to get to next. <clears throat> so let's let's talk about conceptualization. That's what a lot of your work is, and that's something that was really helpful for me and, and many other, uh, you know, uh, trainees. So. <laughs> There's 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 a few things I, I I hopefully we can we can get to after we we talk about conceptualization. But one of them is about kind of on the client side. Many clients will come to me and say, "Okay, I want the tools and the techniques. Tell me what I need to do. How do I fix this?" As if you know, it's like a manual or a cookbook. Yeah, um, I get that a lot. And then on the the, the student trainee side. It's very much like, okay, well, what do I do? Like, how do I do this? Yeah. Listen, you know, and 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 some most many of those things are very, um, you know, respectable. I mean, I think I you can understand maybe the intention there. But um, one of the things is conceptualization. So this is something that I, when I was in training, uh, and I'm sure many other psychologists will will, will feel this way, um, and 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 in in many ways is this idea of more so than the techniques or the tools i think it's more of how do i understand at at a at a psychological level how do i understand the human psyche the human the human personality how do i how do i conceptualize how do i the way i describe it is you know i can have a a bookshelf which is a frame and then i can put all of these different books on there which would be techniques or tools but how do i have a frame of understanding or, or holding what a client gives me right they're giving me all of their trauma their personality things their temperament mm-hmm. uh, many relationships uh, th- views about themselves there's yeah. all of those things and techniques are are very symptom focused which is fine but that's the top layer there's mm-hmm. many many layers to a human being and so i find and so in this way is you can some people will do this in a kind of um integrative approach uh where you can conceptualize people how you conceptualize is how you conceptualize a person if you want to use a you know a psychoanalytic uh, framework 
but you could use other techniques from other places if you really wanted to. Oh, um, sure. Many, many people will make this distinction between intervention, clinical intervention, and uh, conceptualization. Yeah. And my, my, uh, as someone that has supervised and someone that is taught now and all these things is so many clinicians, unfortunately, for various reasons, maybe go into a room with a, a client and they have no way of conceptualizing a human being. And yeah, they don't teach case formulation anymore. And, and that's very, very detrimental because that's the things that you need when you run out of tools, when you run out of you know things in the workbook. And some of that has its place. I don't want to seem like I'm I'm totally you know uh, you know bemoaning all these things. They're they're the place, but you need to know how you conceptualize a person has to inform and guide which techniques you may or may not use. Instead of treating it like you're, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? Yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm building you up here to kind of say why this is important. So could you explain why we need conceptualization and, um, and, and how, why that's important aside from techniques and, and kind of the interplay with that? Well, you can hurt people if you insist that your bag of stuff is more important than listening to them and understanding them. And most of us, if we go to a therapist, even if we've been trained that, you know, we should be expecting workbooks and skill training and all that, we we want them to understand us. We want to tell our story. And I usually say when a person puts that kind of pressure on me, well, first, let me, let me hear what it's like to be you. I, I don't know yet what to prescribe for you. So, um, would you mind? I'd like to take a history from you, get a sense of the context of this kind of problem, because people will come in and they'll say that they are or they have something from the DSM. Mm-hmm. And it, it may turn out to be something completely different. Like they, they, yeah. People don't come in anymore and say, I'm a shy person and I want some help learning how to relate better to people. They say, I have social I have phobia. this, right, right. This is my disorder. <laughs> Let me tell you what it is. <laughs> disorder. You know, the drug companies love this disorder language because yes. they can market drugs for them. And right, right. to some extent, we've been drinking that Kool-Aid because, um, you know, to prove that psychotherapy worked as well as drugs, we had to accept the sort of position of the drug companies that mm-hmm. psychotherapy is about applying a fix to a DSM disorder. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that isn't really what, what most people come for. They come, they're, they're suffering. They don't understand why. Um, they're anxious all the time or they're depressed all the time or they're developing a substance use disorder or they're developing an eating disorder. Something's wrong. Sometimes it's not in the DSM at all. Sometimes, you know, they're a gay person who grew up in a fundamentalist family who wants someone to bear witness to the fact that they've got to come out to their family and they're scared to death. Mm -hmm. That's not a disorder. That's just life is hard and you need, uh, you know, a a companion in the journey. Mm -hmm. In the psychoanalytic literature, we have... um, language for different ways that people can organize their personality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might be more um, obsessive compulsive, you might be more paranoid, you might be more narcissistic, and so on. But also, at what level of organization mm-hmm. are you? Because let's take somebody 
like what I said about the obsessive compulsive person, there's a huge difference between the patient who comes in and says, I'm developing these rituals and I know they're crazy. And they started when I lost my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, I just, I just need to find some help with this because I keep feeling anxious if I don't do the rituals. Mm-hmm. That's a person who's already treating you like a potential helper. Mm -hmm. Um, you can see that their problem came on at a certain point under a certain kind of stress, Mm -hmm. um, that they see that it is a problem. And then you get a person with exactly the same symptoms, meeting exactly the same DSM criteria, uh, who you find out two years into treatment is doing all these rituals Mm -hmm. and you inquire about it. And they, they say, well, that's what my parents did. They taught me to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. How do you keep the witches away if you don't do that? and they, uh, and if you try to raise questions about it, they they look like you have three heads. That mm-hmm. that kind of person may have exactly the same DSM diagnosis, mm-hmm. but they're going to take a lot longer even to see that they've been um, constricting their life because of their rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So with eating disorders, same thing. You know, one person comes to a college counseling center saying, I think I'm starting to restrict my food and uh, I found myself wanting to vomit and uh, I'm developing an eating disorder consequence of gaining 10 pounds in my freshman year. This person is likely to be helpable very fast through any kind of therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they another person may meet exactly the same DSM criteria in terms of their behavior. But you find out that they've been restricting since the age of six, Mm. that their parents taught them to do that, that um, they believe that they're overweight, even though they're 87 pounds and essentially dying of starvation. That's a kind of psychotic level of Mm -hmm. uh, they 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 will fight you if you try to get them to eat. You know, Mm -hmm. that's a whole different thing. They don't see that they have a problem. They were probably brought to the counseling center kicking and screaming by their classmates because they've heard them puking in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So it's not even their own voluntary effort to come to you. Those things matter a lot in terms yeah, yeah. of planning treatment. Mm-hmm. And it matters. Take a symptom like perfectionism. It matters whether this is a perfectionism of, let's say, a more obsessive compulsive type, where the person is trying to be morally without flaw, mm-hmm. or um, uh, a more hysterical type where the person wants to be the best little person they can be right. so that they won't be rejected and talked mm-hmm. down to, mm-hmm. or whether it's a more narcissistic kind of perfectionism, which is not about trying to be morally as good as possible. It's about looking perfect to other people. Those are three different states of mind, mm-hmm. and they're all describable by this symptomatic mm-hmm. uh, term. Yep. If you don't know the difference, how are you helping the person? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, again, I, I learned a long time ago, as much as I, I love differential, it's such a fun thing to do. It's a kind of an academic thing, and, and I, I teach diagnosis to grad students, and I love it. I love diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of fun. But in terms of treatment, 
I don't really think in terms of diagnosis and in, in terms of DSM diagnosis. I, right. I, I don't, I don't think that way. I, I think, I, don't either. <laughs> I think more, I mean, I know them obviously, and I can teach them and I enjoy uh, an aspect of it, but it's a, it's a, for me, therapeutically is trying to understand what are the symptoms that this person has, regardless of their disorder or not, and how is it impacting them? So you, you gave a, a really nice way of explaining that. So we can kind of navigate through some of this, you know, a little bit, which is, what you were talking about is this kind of level of personality organization. So mm-hmm. in, in, in the book, and I don't think you're the only one that's that said this, but there's... You no, can this kind is of actually both. Otto Kernberg's great contribution. Yeah. So you have neurotics, borderline psychotic, and you can explain those terms are mm-hmm. slightly uh, dated a bit, but um, what those mean and what we look for there. So we look for a person's reality testing, how their yeah. sense of identity, their object yeah. representation, self-observation, yeah. impulse control, et cetera. Um, so maybe just kind of explain those and, and what we're looking for, because that's really how you're conceptualizing. When somebody, when when if, if for a listener, if they go into an office and they go into a therapy office for someone that is uh, psychoanalytically minded, um, this is sort of kind of what what's the what's important of how someone's trying to understand who you are as a person. Like, how is it that you're functioning? How is it that you as a person are functioning in the world? Uh, with yourself. So maybe just kind of give uh, what those are and, and what, what's being looked at. Well, you know, when, when psychoanalysis started, there were just two categories. You're either neurotic or you're psychotic. And if you're neurotic, you see that you're crazy. And if you're psychotic, you don't. You've left the consensual reality of other people. Mm. And they thought that the neurotic conditions were um, the obsessive and compulsive conditions, phobias, non-psychotic depressions, and what they were then calling the hysterical conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, the psychotic conditions were the schizophrenias and uh, psychotic versions of what we now call bipolar. Over time, we began seeing that it's not so simple. It's not that you're either sane or you're crazy. There was a whole group of patients in the middle, which is where the term borderline originally came from. They're on the border between neurotic and psychotic. They, they're more intense. They have a lot of trouble with um, regulating their emotions. They tend to think in all good or all bad terms. They don't have uh, identity integration. When they describe other people, they describe them as all good or all bad or kind of um, as monsters or saints or or just kind of impressionistically, like a patient of mine, I said, what's your father like? Well, he's just my dad. You know? uh, <laughs> where there are, so in a good interview, you, you, at the neurotic level, we still use that term in the psychoanalytic field for people who can see that they have a problem. It's ego alien. Mm-hmm. They make a good relationship with you. They, they, it's like you're too people looking at the problem part of them. Um, They are able to uh, reflect on themselves. They're able to mentalize other people, meaning they have what philosophers call theory of mind. That, that, Like if you say something that hurts my feelings, if I have theory of mind, I think, gee, I wonder what happened to him that made him say something insensitive. Mm. Um, If I don't have it, I think you tried to hurt me. Okay, so uh, and reality testing in general, there are some patients, they've never had a psychotic break. They've never been diagnosable as schizophrenic or manic 
depressive psychosis. But they they mix up inside and outside a lot. Yeah. Um, they believe their projections. In therapy, they tend to believe they know your mind better than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very self-referential. Um, they are they have annihilation anxiety, not just separation anxiety. They often feel like they don't have a self, not like they have a good or a bad self-state. Mm-hmm. They they don't have a self. So there's a whole continuum from healthy through neurotic through the border, which, and I'm using this in Kernberg's term as a level of organization, not the DSM type of personality, which Mm -hmm. is, I think it was a shame that they did that. Mm -hmm. But, and, and the psychotic level, I'm not using it as equivalent to being schizophrenic. I'm talking about difficulty really with even feeling like you're alive sometimes mm-hmm. being terrified of of not going on being mm-hmm. um for example i i had a patient he was a pretty high functioning guy but he said he had a significant paranoid streak and i thought okay he can see it he's probably pretty healthy but very early in the treatment i noticed that when he was talking to me about things that were painful he uh, he would abruptly change the subject. Mm. And I called that to his attention. I said, I think I'm seeing a pattern here where when you start to feel sad, um, you change the subject. He said, oh, yeah, I know I do that. And I, I said, what's your understanding of what's going on when you do that? And I think I expected him to say something like, I don't want to start crying or I'm not ready to go there yet. But what he said was, well, I can see I'm hurting you. Hmm. Okay. So uh, underneath the confidence that he had was this conviction that his first job was to keep me okay. And he knew my mind better than I did. And he didn't have the concept of a person who could have sadness on her face as a separate person compassionately toward him he felt he was damaging me and i construed that as somebody organized with some psychotic level stuff Mm -hmm. um so we it, it makes a huge difference for patients where you see them as being if they're in the neurotic level um you know psychoanalysis was originally attacked because it was most helpful with the healthiest people but that's not specific to psychoanalysis. If you're if you're a healthy person and you're in CBT therapy, you're going to do your homework. You're going to cooperate. You're going to you know, um, you're going to find it helpful. If you're in uh, humanistic therapy, it's going to be helpful to you right away. If you're um, in systems therapy, family therapy, you're going to be working on your family system. So that's not specific to psychoanalysis. But I think psychoanalysis has a longer um history than the other newer approaches of looking at what are the implications for if you're in the borderline where you're a very intense person where you're terrified when you're close to people because you're afraid you're going to be engulfed but when you're separate from them you feel abandonment mm-hmm. distress um where 
your intensity gets you into trouble where you don't feel like you can describe yourself as both bad and good and other people as both bad and good. And you're either in one self state or the other. And you use very primitive defenses like splitting, projective identification, denial, withdrawal, dis primitive forms of dissociation, idealization, devaluation, acting out, somatization. Those are among the a grand, omnipotent control among the more primitive ways of being in the world. And if you don't have more mature ways like sublimation or a sense of humor or the capacity to intellectualize about something, um, if you don't have those, chances are we think of you as needing work on that stuff. If you're in the more psychotic range, you're going to need a very active psychotherapy, very conversational, very supportive, very focused on things that um, make sense to the person where the therapist is always paying attention to, are you feeling safe with me or not? Mm -hmm. So those are some of the implications of where you see people. Interestingly, there is empirical research now. I'm thinking of Carla Sharp's work that has, that that's um, supported this idea uh, that, that it's more important to understand that the level of organization of a patient than it is to understand what type of personality they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's more instructive because it's, you're trying to understand. I mean, to me, it, to me, that's really what therapy is, is trying to have yeah. somebody work with you to understand things about yourself, to have a healthier sense of self. Um, I wanted to ask you also, you mentioned that there are defenses. So we have these kind of these two headings these uh primitive and, and mature mm -hmm. um defenses are mostly or almost all unconscious right and and so you know and obviously they can they can rise to consciousness so in freud's topographic model you have the uh, unconscious pre-conscious conscious right and this mm -hmm. is something as you mentioned in the beginning we still i i think that's in terms of um aspects of his thought that is the most and one of the most enduring aspects yeah. and you see this yeah. still today whether people call it something different or whatever uh, i had a conversation with paul bloom who's a, a research psychologist and he writes some really awesome books and he's a lovely wonderful man and he's a super great thinker and and he wrote a book recently which is based off his like intro to psych course at uh, i believe it was yale uh called psych and it's and he basically just does a, a really nice kind of overview of psychology it's a popular kind of science book and and obviously, you got to talk about Freud if you're going to talk about psychology. And he he gives him his due. You know, he, yeah. he he's coming at it from from it a non. Read him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, yeah, right, right. He's he's coming at it from a non-clinical perspective. Yeah. Uh, so you know, he he says like there's a lot to pick on Freud about, and you know, many things. But even even he was able to say, you know what, Freud's Freud's aspect of under talking about sexuality in ways that need to be discussed and how how they're connected with things is, is is tremendous and this also tomographical model of things beneath and things above if you will conscious yeah. unconscious however you want to describe it implicit explicit mm -hmm. um you know certain certain ways of, of of talking about it and so defenses are are part of it and so defenses are are or trying to uh part this aspect of the ego right trying to keep things mm -hmm. in, in check how do you know and so people don't really know it i guess when it's happening but there's some interesting ones obviously you, you listen you know uh 
projection, projection identification, mm -hmm. reaction formation is super interesting. Yeah. There's different ways in which people will do this based on where their level of personality um, organization is. So maybe we just talk generally about defenses and then we can get to transfers. Well, defenses are universal. And we, we all can't be overwhelmed by stimuli and by anxiety all the time. Right, so, right. Um, you know, when we're infants, we first defend by splitting. Oh, that's the bad stuff out there. I'm the good stuff in here. Um, or by withdrawal, for example, I'm overstimulated. I'll go to sleep. Um, or this is not happening. It's denial. I mean, we all use all these defenses and they're adaptive. And you tend to um, develop ways of coping that fit your family of origin. Mm. If dissociation is adaptive to your family of origin, because your father rapes you every night, and then you have to have dinner with him afterward mm -hmm. and pretend like nothing happened, um, dissociation becomes a very organizing defense for you. Uh, if you're brought up in a family where everybody's always evaluating everything, you're going to end up with idealization and devaluation defenses because you'll learn that from your parents. Um, they're, they're, our particular uh, childhood setting, we develop the defensive patterns that adapt to that setting. Mm -hmm. They may be very adaptive to later life, or they may be maladaptive. When people come to us, it's because their defenses have have been maladaptive outside the world of their family of origin. And, yeah, and, I, and yeah. I find that that people have two responses usually to it. If you if you kind of catch them on the defenses, because you know again there are, there's unconscious elements, so it's like they're not noticing it. There's either another yes, well that's what it is. Oh, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Or it's the resistance, right? Where it's yeah. like, no, that's not what it is. No, 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 no. I don't need you to analyze me about this. Like, that's not what it is. No, I just, I just felt that way. Or it's like, yeah, but you don't, you don't see it's, they, they're, they're again. There's again to that personality organization. I usually get one or the other. Not to make it this dichotomy, but I usually get a kind of like almost wanting to be like, yes, that's what it is, or a kind of like, no, that's not what it is. Don't tell me that's how it is. I usually get one or the other, typically. Uh huh. Yeah, that's kind of familiar. It it's all a matter of timing, and if you are right in what you, there are a couple of possibilities. If you're wrong, and the patient tells you that's not what it is, that's the patient. Right. That's just, that's on me then. <laughs> different with you, but if you're right uh, and you and you time it really well, they'll probably have the first reaction. And mm -hmm. if you're premature or unempathic in how you tell them, they're going to have the second reaction. <laughs> and, you know, we all resist change. There's a, a, a misunderstanding of the term resistance in psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. All systems resist change. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all cling to what's been familiar. And it's not, uh, resistance is not when the patient doesn't want to see what you see. It's mm -hmm. uh, the patient is anxious about trying out new behavior yeah. or thinking in new ways because we all are. Mm -hmm. And that's why they need a relationship within which to try this all out. Mm. Yeah. Because we, we resist change. T talk about, I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier and I, I'm actually really curious about your thoughts here on this is transference and countertransference. You can describe them what they are, but 
for a while, countertransference was seen as a taboo, if you will, right? It was the yeah. thing that you didn't want to do. And and since then, over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, or, you know, we, we've, you know, really learned that we need to to use it and use it, you know, very well. And of yeah. course, you can use it in negative ways as well. I guess more recently, I mean, you know, I haven't kept up on all the papers on it, but, you know, what what do you think for yourself and I guess more generally of of how we have, you know, a long tradition of understanding and things we don't still understand, but transference and countertransference and how we, we use it or interact with it, uh, especially in a, in a, I guess, a clinical setting. Well, I think starting with the work of Heinrich Rocker in the 60s, a South American psychoanalyst, we've slowly uh, depathologized countertransference um, if you work with only healthy patients, your countertransference is not going to be very strong mm-hmm. because, you know, they're cooperative, et cetera. But most people that we work with, they evoke feelings from us, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and instead of you can waste a lot of time saying there's something wrong with you, Nancy. You've lost your empathy. If you're feeling irritated at this patient, what's the matter with you? Go back and think about your own history and your own analysis and see if you can get better. That's just a dead end. But if I can think, well, I'm finding myself irritated. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's that telling me? Am I feeling what the patient feels? Because Rocker said you're either feeling something the patient often feels or you're feeling ways that people in the patient's world have felt toward the patient. The right. first is a concordant, and the second is a complementary kind of countertransfer. So once you once you realize that that whatever you're feeling may be telling you something about what's going on with the patient, it makes some patients much easier to work with because some people don't communicate on channel one all the time, which is you know, <laughs> verbal explication. They communicate through facial affect, body language, and evoking yeah. countertransference in you. So I think the relational movement has been um, very important in continuing the process of depathologizing countertransference to the extent that relational therapists will sometimes share their countertransference. Mm-hmm. I find myself feeling oddly bored and you're not a boring person what do you think might be going on between us mm-hmm. that that there's this sort of odd I, I i it's odd because i'm having trouble what you know keeping my thoughts in a straight line and that doesn't usually happen to me does that happen to you are you mm-hmm. feeling the same way mm-hmm. or do other people report that they have that reaction mm-hmm. i don't do a whole lot of that um because i think it often uh is very distressing to patients to find out that they're having that reaction to you but i do observe it all the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow i i you know i, I i'm i'm finding that i'm having the fantasy of adopting this person taking her home putting her up in my house reparenting her mm-hmm. what what's going on between us that i'm feeling this rescue fantasy it, you know it's not always negative mm-hmm. yeah i i I, I I use that kind of with the client, uh, but it depends on the client. Depends on how long. Depends on what point. It's usually yeah. later in in treatment. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, if you you're right, kind of what you're saying about with the the earlier point about defenses, if you do it too soon, it can be very disarming. And and you know, it really it really depends on the on the on the client, and then and then the timing of it. I I, I find. I have a 
uh, three three final questions here. Uh, so the first is, I mean, this is you know we could spend hours talking about this, but how 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 do we train future uh, the, that dynamic and analytic clinicians and therapists uh, well, where we don't lose the importance of conceptualization, understanding um, uh, patients and humans. Um, and all of the things we've been talking about, how do we, some of that is lost. Um, obviously there's uh, internal, you know, battles within the analytic tradition as there always have been and always will yeah. be. But um, how do we, I, I really feel for trainees and students, I, I, I want them to get the best and not get anything less than that. Um, how do you feel, um, you know, in the 21st century, how do we maintain this tradition and, and, and the best ways, I guess, to continue to training folks in this, uh, in this way? Well, I think analytic teachers have to first teach it. <laughs> Secondly, they have to embody it. You have to talk to your students about how you work, what, ha you, know, what you said in this situation. You have to show them how useful it is to think in these terms. Once they get that, I mean, I, I get a lot of people who've been trained in all these different techniques and they come to me and they say, but I, nobody ever gave me the structure within which to choose what to use when. And I think there's something about psychoanalysis that, that thinks about the bigger picture and they find it very valuable for me to talk about my own experience. Now, the third thing is that people should get their own therapy. Absolutely. I don't know how you do therapy. I don't either. You haven't experienced it yourself. Totally agree with you. Only to know what it feels like to be in the patient's chair. Mm -hmm. um, not, not to mention there's so much that you can learn about yourself that will help you not make certain mistakes with patients. Mm -hmm. But how do you ever get the conviction? Yeah. This really helps. Yeah. You know, because your professor told you it does, but you don't see it with your patients. You have to find totally it. Agree. Fully, fully agree. I mean, I, I know it was required in, in some courses long or uh, programs long ago, and it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the requirement, maybe some places, some you know, it still is, but most places it isn't. And 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 uh, I mean, I think it should be. I mean, I I've had my own uh, you know, therapy for, for ver at various points, uh, in my life and for years. And, um, yeah, me too. And, and I've done a, a type of contemporary analysis where, you know, <laughs> the free lay down, free associate, you know, not four times a week, but, uh, once, once a week, but, uh, that was the, the method we use. And, and, um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I could, uh, if you would have asked me this 15, 10, 15 years ago, I would have said, of course I can, but I'm mean, saying it now. I don't know how I could do treatment if I hadn't had my own treatment. I, I, I just agree. I, I can't I can't imagine I can't I can't visualize I can't picture it. It's it's foreign to me. So yeah, I, I draw I, on I, my own treatment every single day. I, I try and and really and you know impress upon that for students. The other thing is is on the client side. So you know, for many people maybe listening, you know, you don't have to give the, the sales pitch here, but why would you what would you say or what would you to, to the average person that's having, they feel stuck or they feel they have some, some issues, some challenges in their life uh, with themselves or the relationships or things that happen to them. What would you say to, to, to the average person that feels that way to say, you know, 
you you hear a lot of things and you hear about the exposure and the EMDR and the trauma informed this and the CBT and the and all those things are great. What would you say to say, you know, maybe maybe give some of the analytic tradition a a, a glance. Take a look at what they're doing over there if it's someone pretty worthwhile. What would you say would be the 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 reasoning for 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 getting someone to get in with a, a person with the analytic tradition? Well, usually when patients um, come for help, they're not thinking about these differentiations among people in the discipline. And when I refer people, I say, I, you know, I know this person, I know their work. Um, I tend to find out from the patient. I will say something like, look, the, the research shows that the most important thing is the chemistry between you and the therapist. The personality of the therapist matters a lot more than what particular techniques they're trained in. Certainly. Um, So tell me about what kind of person you think you'd be comfortable with. Do you have any um, preferences for their age, for their gender, for their sexual orientation, for their background, for their politics? I want to maximize the possibility that you're going to feel like you can really explore yourself with this person. And I listen and I take a lot of time with it. And mm-hmm. then I give them two or three names that seem to fit with what they've said. And they don't, they're not thinking about the theoretical orientation of these people. They're thinking, you know, Nancy listened to me enough mm-hmm. that she thought of people that, mm-hmm. that might be a good match with me. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I think I think that's I, I think I think that's super important. I, I know that some people have come up to me and they'll and they'll say, you know, I went on psychology today and there's a lot of stuff on there. I don't know what all of family systems, CBT, yeah. it's like what what is all of this? What is all this? how do how do I and I I do something similar. I, I usually say, look, you know, therapy is I mean, I mean analogies have a, a, a certain half-life, I guess, but I'll say look. If if you if you if you're convinced that you you really want to do the work and this is a good moment to do therapy, which I think is great, it's like trying on a pair of shoes, right? Mm-hmm. You go into a store and you gotta wear shoes. You know you gotta get you gotta come out with something, right? But the first one you pull off the shelf and you kind of have an idea of your size. Okay, I'm an eight and a half. I'm a nine. I'm a twelve. Whatever it is, um. You try it on and it it doesn't quite fit. Like you kind of make it there, but it's not quite there. So you try two or three other ones until you find the one. They're all okay. They're all shoes that you could wear, but you find the one that fits. Like you, it's yep. your, your, you got a wide foot or maybe a long foot, whatever, right? I said, that's kind of how therapy is, right? Mm-hmm. They're all, they all have their place. And obviously there's some, you know, uh, not so good therapists out there, of course, but you got to find the one that you have the fit. And a lot of that comes with, the person who it is it's not necessarily about the orientation of course yep. you want people that are competent and ethical of course yeah yep. but you've got to find the fit i i usually give some i, I get nice. information and i i get something I like that, that. <laughs> yeah go ahead steal it <laughs> yeah i find something like that um and they oh you know what yeah and i and i try to give them hope because you know of course in the, in the current world you know it's you know, insurance and a schedule and setting yeah. up the initial thing. And it's a lot of work. And I say, don't get discouraged. I know it's discouraging. You're going to find it and it doesn't work with the insurance or the scheduling or it's not the right fit. Keep trying. You got to find yeah. the right fit and you'll you'll get there. So I try to, yeah. to you know, tell them beforehand. It's it's kind of getting in there is, is the hardest thing. The last question here. Um, 
So just a kind of general question is, what, what do you think, you know, in 20, 50 years, what's the future of kind of psychoanalytic kinds of therapy? Where, where, do, you, where do you see it going? If you give me your crystal ball, where do, you, where do you see things going, I guess? Yeah, I'm not very good as a prognosticator. <laughs> um, I know we'll survive because we help people and they, they tell people about their experience and they encourage people to come to psychoanalytic therapists. And, um, you know, we have a lot to offer and biological psychiatry is running into some of its limits now. Mm -hmm. Um, people are, people are seeking, um, relationship and understanding. I don't know what psychoanalytic therapy, um, will be most interested in, but it'll depend on what the culture is dealing with most. Mm. I mean, contemporarily, psychoanalysts are writing about um, culture, ethnicity, immigration, yeah. um, uh, trauma, the trans, the, the transgenerational transmission of mm -hmm. trauma, how you help people who are migrants, who are oppressed, who are indigenous people. There's a huge literature on yep. psychoanalysis and race. There used to be almost none. It was as if, you know, your middle-class white heterosexual guy was the, the standard and then everything else was a deviation. That's gone out the, mm -hmm. the window. The last mm -hmm. meeting of the Division of Psychoanalysis of the American Psychological Association was full of brown faces and young faces and yeah. Yeah. Asian faces. Um, so it's it's going to it's going to pick up the issues that are central to the decades in front of us. We're we're already developing a small literature on on what they call solastalgia, the the, the feeling that the environment is disappearing on us. The earth we're losing the earth. Our mother earth is in terrible trouble that there, there's a catastrophe ahead and there's this nostalgia for feeling connected with um the the planet um mm -hmm. that people are writing about so i think the topics will change but the interest in the unconscious impact mm -hmm. and the concern to develop a style of relationship that makes people able to talk about these things and problem solve and that puts the emphasis on their finding their way to their own sense of agency rather than the expert telling them what to do mm. is it that's that's gonna outlast us all yeah no i definitely agree i I, sometimes I get the question: you know, is, is AI going to replace us? And I say, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't. We need a human being, and we need a human being to talk to another human being about our most uh, difficult challenges. I think, and um, I agree with you. I think that uh, there will always be around, and it will always be useful. I think, and uh, it might the topics might change a bit, but I think the, the construct there is, is going to be there. Uh, what do, what do I say, Nancy? I mean, this was this was this was such a such a an honor and a privilege. I'm I'm so so grateful for for you giving me your time and, and explaining all these things. And I I'm, I'm really uh, proud of our our conversation. So I, I can't say enough thanks to you for for giving me your oh, time. You're and very welcome. Time. I enjoyed it myself. I love to spout off on these topics. <laughs> I love so. it too. It's great. It's great. Well, big thanks. I appreciate it. You're very welcome.